You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Episode 119, The Paradox. Welcome to The Paradox with your attending, Dr. Eric Larson. He is a practicing anesthesiologist and clinical assistant professor at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. Listen in as he takes you behind the scenes of what practicing medicine in today's ever-changing world is like with another doctor. The Paradox is a fun and accidentally informative show for physicians, patients, or anyone who has ever found themselves in a waiting room. Welcome to The Paradox. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Larson. Thank you for joining me as we explore the U.S. medical system in a fun and informative format through expert analysis. And today's expert is a little off the beaten path. I interviewed Dan Reed from the Culinary Libertarian, and we're going to talk about food and the intersection of food and health, and a lot of interesting aspects with food, like where it comes from, what's healthy, and we will also talk a little bit about how to cook things, specifically eggplants, and why you'd even want a cooking eggplant. We'll talk a little bit, of course, about regulations and how the government affects the way we eat and grow our food. And I did have some technical issues during the episode, so I do want to apologize ahead of time. And about a third of the way through the interview, I got disconnected and reconnected, and it set as my default my computer mic. Ugh, the dreaded computer mic. Anyway, although you can understand exactly what I'm saying, it is a little bit like I'm talking through a tin can, which is why no one uses computer mics. But first, a word from our sponsor. MedEvolve can give you insights into your practice's financial performance and outcomes like never before. Get answers to important revenue questions such as, where am I losing money and why? What is the value of my AR? When will I get paid? And how many claims have not been worked? When you start to think about the level of transparency you have into how your AR is being worked, that's directly proportional to your net revenue and keeping a healthy balance sheet. The right analytic solution will tell a story that's easy to understand. MedEvolve Power Analytics gives you the answers that allow you to take action. Start making healthcare business decisions based on data. Learn how we're helping physician practices reduce their cost to collect and increase efficiency with data-driven technology. To have this great company help you work smarter, reduce your costs to collect, and get paid on time, find them at drpodcastnetwork.com slash medevolve. The link is also in the description of the show at the show notes page at theparadox.com slash 119. If you've not yet done so, be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast player. Also leave a five-star review. Written reviews are greatly appreciated. 
and continue to share it with your friends. The growth of the show is entirely dependent on you sharing the show, and I am eternally grateful. I'm also extremely grateful to the patrons at patreon.com who support the show financially and help keep the show free for all you freeloaders. Don't worry, I'm a freeloader on most of the shows I listen to as well. But anyway, I want to really thank those who are at the patreon.com slash the paradox and have committed a small amount of money each month to help with the production and promotion of the show. But without further ado, Dan Reed, executive chef and host of the Culinary Libertarian Podcast. Enjoy. Well, hey, I'm here with my new friend, Dan Reed. He's the host of the Culinary Libertarian, and he has worked pretty much everywhere in the food industry as a chef, uh, work in grocery stores, restaurants, and lots of other places like retirement homes. And he's now sort of more of an executive chef where he's focusing on other things, like not lifting all the heavy pans and things like that, which are hard, hard on his knees, and uh, working on cookbooks and things like that, especially with baking. So, Dan, thanks so much for joining the show. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you very much. And the, before we start, is it culinary or culinary? Does that depend on if you're like pretentious or not? I've always wondered. I think it depends entirely on your affectation, but I'm perfectly fine with culinary. I'm well. We're both kids from the Midwest, right? So uh, it's culinary. we are. Um, let's begin with a, bi- a brief background, I guess, why you started the podcast. I'm curious, you're obviously have a passion for food and for nutrition and just sort of everything that just goes along with food. Uh, what, what led you to actually start blogging and kind of doing the podcast? Well, I, I, I have laid the blame for this. If blame exists on Tom Woods, because he always says, start a podcast, start a, start a blog. So I did. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it's not Tom's fault. The, the podcast was a way to initially get some food information out, just to get it out of my head, because it, it seemed faster than writing books, which I've done also. The, the culinary part was easy. The liberty part is, well, both of these things are works in progress as learning goes, but I have a big step up in knowledge on the culinary side. And it seemed that there was a good way to put those two together at least to me, the obvious solution for the culinary and the libertarian part is uh, government policy. Sure, there's there's lots of government in your food at the grocery store or in the restaurant, or even at if you go to the farm. There's government there. Depending on who you are, answers the question of how much government is necessary, and that's either a point of argumentation or at least conversation, but also illumination. Do we need all the policy we have? Probably not. Do we need some? Possibly. Who should be in charge of that? That's where the conversation should begin. Does the farmer know best about what is good for the animals, or does some desk jockey in Washington know better about what's good for the animals? Well, Asked that way, and that's a loaded question, the answer is plain. The farmer knows more about what the animals need than the guy driving a desk. So it's worth having a conversation about these things. And as the podcast went on, I learned more about things about food and health-wise. And this is one of the things you asked me, what do we, let's talk about maybe healthy food. What does healthy mean? Because there isn't an agreement on that any longer. So we have to have a conversation about having a conversation. Right. Yeah. Well, and I think to your point about healthy, I, it's a, it's a moving definition. Uh, you know, where do you, wherever you want to focus health on, is it on health outcomes? Is it weight? Is it longevity? How well you are through the, your quality of life throughout your life. Right. I mean, you could live to a hundred, but if you're you know in pain the whole time or you can't get out and do anything, 
then you'd say it was not a healthy life, right? I mean, I think our definition of what we want, I guess it really varies from person to person. Let's talk about the, what most people think of the health and they think of the, the let's just say the FDA they, or the USDA is probably a better example with the food pyramid. And that's sort of the classic thing that you're look to be about same age as me. We learned that, you know, you eat a lot of grains and then by the time you get to the very top of the pyramid, it's I think fats and stuff like that, right? Um, if I recall, dairy's in there and there's just where you work your way up and the amount of servings you need of like vegetables and things sort of diminishes when you go up from starting at grain, right? And right. I think most people agree that that's probably not the right pyramid or that maybe there shouldn't even be a pyramid. But what would you say is sort of the consensus as much as you could attest to any sort of consensus? What would you say we should sort of look for right now to have a healthy diet? Well, you've dated yourself and me, but that's okay because now it's the my plate. The pyramid's gone. They did away with the pyramid. So the my plate version. So imagine sort of the, like your cafeteria plastic plate with four sections on it. And easily the two sections that are the biggest are the grains and vegetables and then meat and dairy. The dairy is, there is the cup meat and Something I just did a podcast episode about the dietary guidelines. I should know this. <laughs> the, the question is, what is a healthy diet? The problem with asking a question like that is it assumes that one, there can be one thing for everybody and there isn't a one size fits all panacea for eating. So once we eliminate the idea that what works for one person is going to work for the next person, we have to examine the body. And so as a doctor, you know that these two people in pain may not have the exact same source of pain, even though they both say, I hurt. Right. So one of the things that, many things I discovered, but one of the things that was interesting was from the dietary guidelines, 60% of the people who would follow that are being made more unwell by following eating more grains. Now, okay, Mr. Smart Guy, what does it mean to be unwell? The unwell part is obese, not necessarily visible. So people our age know who Karen Carpenter was, she visibly was a very thin person, but she was technically obese. So you're obese, you're overweight. Weight's a funny thing, we can get to that. Diabetic or pre-diabetic, heart conditions, heart disease, fatty liver syndrome. There's lots of issues going on that are not healthful issues that are being heavily contributed to, in my editorialization, with food. Food is, I think, the number one source for wellness or unwellness that we have in our life barring things that we can't control like genetics. 40% of the people who followed the healthy diet, healthy diet by the USDA dietary guidelines, even in that group, there are people who are pre-diabetic. All of this is so. Ivor Cummings is a guy who does a lot about cholesterol. Keto Don Under from a couple years ago had a lot of good people on the panel and I watched a lot of those videos. There's a lot of information that counteracts. Nina Teichschutz is one of those who write about how the USDA dietary guidelines are not necessarily doing what they should have been intended to do, which is guide people to a diet of wellness and healthfulness. So if people have prediabetes, I'm stepping into your territory here, but as I understood the basics, when, when we eat things like grains, sugar is hidden in lots of ways. It's not just a little packet on the table, right? Grains and starches of any kind turn, end up turning into glucose. When we have all that on our system, we have insulin resistance because we have too much stuff for the insulin to deal with. It's got to go somewhere. So it goes in the fat cells and makes bigger fat cells and it goes in muscles and liver and pancreas and 
all kinds of places we probably don't want it to be. When our body never gets a chance to get the stored energy of fat out of the fat cells, because there's so much sugar in the bloodstream, we just continue to get fat. Why don't we go follow up on that a little bit? Because, you know, when it comes to healthy foods, I think a lot of, there's been a lot more focus now on not only the types of food you're eating, but certainly where you're getting the food source from, right? I think, you know, it's one, it's different to eat a tomato that has been grown and it was picked before it was ripe, let's say, versus one that maybe you got from, and that's traveled, let's say a thousand miles to get to you versus one that's grown in your backyard, right? And that, yes. you know, you bought that's, well, you didn't buy it, you grew it. And so, you know, it's ripe right when you pick it. And so the nutrient values are different than these vegetables. So you can have essentially two identical pieces of food, but they are different in their nutri- uh, nutrient values. So do you think like a lot of it is not only what we're eating, but um, where we're getting the actual things that we're eating that is, that is maybe even more important or at least as important? I think that's an excellent question. And I, I haven't really looked deeply into that idea. From a nutrition standpoint, I haven't examined it. I think there's a lot to be said for eating the food that grows as near to you as possible. Now, part of that has to do with miles traveled. So a tomato that came from Immokalee, Florida, that's sold in Seattle, Washington, that <laughs> things traveled better than I have. <laughs> so that's a well-traveled tomato versus getting a tomato from, now it's March. So except in Florida, not too many people are growing tomatoes, but maybe they have their own hothouse. But even at that, that's probably better than the tomato from the grocery store that who knows where it's been, who knows what water has been on that. We, we know that sometimes contaminated water gets used for agriculture and we have these massive outbreaks. So there's a lot to be said for local food. Now, one of the things you had suggested we talk about was food sovereignty, which is a big topic. And I have a couple of blog posts about that, but food sovereignty at its basic is you being able to being, this is funny, you being able as in allowed by your overlords to eat the food you grow in your backyard. Now, there have been some examples where judges have ruled you don't have the right to eat the food you grow. And you say to yourself, this is just absurd. This is a bizarre world. How can this be? But they're not popular cases, but these, but they set a kind of a precedent that you can't have the food you grow. And this is insane. Who would, who would agree to this? Now, are we talking about the United States to be clear? I mean, I, yes. So, I mean, what is an example, like, is there a, a, that you have a garden in your backyard or that they just prevent you from growing your own food? The specific example was, I mean, I'm, I'm going to end up getting some of these details confused. There was a herd share, I think it was Wisconsin, where the judge ruled that if you are not the person who owns the cow, then you can't be part of the herd share. And that's been, the herd share thing has gone on in a couple of states, which is part of the raw milk thing. Raw milk is a really big deal. There's lots of passion on both sides. But does the government have any position to tell you what you can or cannot put into your body? Because the FDA is happy to usurp all the power that they'll that will let them have. This is a dumb thing. We let them do it. Well, really? <laughs> do we let the bank robbers rob the banks? I mean, come on. It isn't really a food sovereignty thing as much as it is maybe an aesthetics thing for homeowners associations. But people who want to grow gardens in their front lawns have 
they've been tilled down. There was a, I don't remember where, there was a situation recently where people were ordered to remove the vegetable garden because it wasn't pretty enough because it didn't match the grains, the, the lawns. Uh, Florida last year undid a legislative law that prohibited gardens in your front yard. So now people can do that, which makes perfect sense. Why should you not be able to grow vegetables at your property? Right. Okay. So I understand. So the food sovereignty is an issue where there are restrictions, uh, covenants maybe within your homeowner association or with the city ordinances that say you can't have chickens or you can't have, uh, you can't grow corn in your front yard or you have to have it fenced in. I, you know, I personally, I deal with that problem. I try to have a garden in my yard and all I ended up doing is uh, providing a salad bar for deer because if I wanted to put a fence big enough to keep the deer out so that I could actually, you know, harvest it at some point, it was against the rules of the, the homeowner association. But to your point about the herd sharing, so I assume this is very much like a farm co-op in some ways, except that you share the livestock. And so you have a, you, know, you buy a 10th of a share of a cow or something like that. And then you have rights, I suppose, to either its milk or to its beef when it sl- goes to slaughter. Is that? Yeah, that, that's about it. And so they said, well, since you don't actually own it, you can't have part of that because uh, only one person can own the cow. You can't you can't share and share in it in some way, and so that, which allows the federal government, I suppose, to have regulatory authority over for how it's slaughtered and things like that. Is that pretty accurate? Slaughtering is a separate issue, but slaughtering is a thing, and then the general government is more than happy to maintain control over that. It seems the impetus really for managing the milk is the raw milk issue, and okay. then the raw butter, the raw cheese, the raw kefir. There's a food rights book. There's several of them. But he went through a lot of the Amish communities were starting to have some trouble from the FDA because they were selling raw milk and selling raw cheese. And Gumpert, David, I think his name is David Gumpert, wrote the book. It, it gets into, really just seems to be the general government interested in exercising its power because it can, as opposed to acting in the, if there's such a thing as public health, and that's another conversation, right? Uh, acting for the public health is just lots of individual health, but that's, <laughs> I don't want to say. <laughs> so then along those same lines, you know, you, you comment on one of your previous blog posts, you're talking about uh, protein and an, when it comes to animal protein. And the, the question is always, you know, where should you get your beef, right? Should you get it from the grocery store? Should you get it from the butcher shop? Should you get it from the farmer, you know, or you know, have your own, I suppose, right? And right. then, and then how, and then how you, the, the livestock is raised, right? Whether it's grain fed, grass fed, um, you know, grain fed at the end, grass fed at the end or, or something else. And so when someone poses the question to you, you know, what's the best you had a, you had a ranking and explain the ranking. And then at the end, you mentioned plant protein. So I'm kind of curious what that is as far as like, you know, protein source and why you rank them the way you do. Well, so yeah, grass-fed versus grass-finished or the whole process. I I think grass-fed and grass-finished is is the best thing to find. The problem is that at your local Winn-Dixie, Publix, Albertsons, whatever it is, you're not going to find that. Even though the label may say grass-finished, but it probably, and it may have been grass-finished, was grain-fed for a long time and and, and not the pretty pasture that's on the picture. If you want (laughs) to get that meat, you've got to find somebody who raises beef near you, who then is allowed to butcher it 
on-site and sell it to you. And there's no guarantee that's the case because the USDA and the FDA are thumbscrews on the butcher industry. There's basically 80% of the beef you buy in the grocery store comes from four places. And it's a, it's just a massive system where when we see 27 states report outbreaks of E. coli from ground beef, the reason 27 states are reporting that is because this gigantic factory of industry has sent ground beef all over the place. And now that mistake at that plant infected 27 states. If we were allowed Frank's cows up the street could butcher the cows ready for butcher and sell to the people around Frank if there was any coli break. And would it never happen? Of course, it would never happen. Probably less risk at a small place who's, and so Frank has every interest to do the best job he can because if word gets out that we bought some meat from Frank and Frank made us all sick, Frank's out of business. Yeah. That's done. When 27 people or 27 states report E. coli, nothing happens. Find the plant, find the accountability, find the inspector who was or wasn't there, whatever, nothing happens. Frank will pay a price almost immediately for his negligence. So he has incentive to do a good job. You know, Frank, you see the cows, you drive time every day. You're pretty sure that those cows are raised well. They look humane. They look like happy cows, whatever that looks like. <laughs> so you have a better chance of getting a better product that now is closer to you. So it has, it's traveled less miles as the dead carcass, which is repetitive. It's a system where you're keeping the food you eat in the neighborhood where it came from. You're spending your dollars to Frank and Frank is keeping his dollars in the community. That's an emotional explanation and it, it has a merit. It's not the real reason. The real reason is that we can nullify the FDA by counting on Frank to do the best job that he can. And Sally, the chicken lady, can give us the best chickens that she can because the same incentive applies to her. Doing the best job, selling the best quality product is what's going to keep Sally in business. It's going to keep her customers healthy and everybody wins. I mean, obviously you can't have the system everywhere because if you, if you live in an urban setting, you, you can't have grass-fed beef, right? I mean, it's, it's impossible because you're inside a city and there's not enough space. So, right. so you're going to have you're going to have to have sourced meats elsewhere. You know, when my wife and I use use beef, we've had we usually buy a cow uh, and a pig, and so we got a grass fed cow, and it was really challenging to cook versus the other farmers, which I think is mainly grain fed and maybe grass at the end, because it was so lean, it made it really really hard to to basically prepare. So how do you get around those sort of problems? This is more a culinary question. You know, how do you get around those problems with you have extremely lean beef, either steaks or or hamburger? Well, the hamburger problem is easy to fix, and the the fix is buy a little bit of extra fat to put into your grind. Okay. So it means with that. So what that means is grind your own. Don't buy ground beef. Oh. Okay. Grind your own. Buy a chuck. Buy some sirloin. Buy some nice different cuts. Add a little bit of extra ground fat to that. So you're getting. I'm actually kind of fond of a 70-30 mix myself because fat is flavor and it tastes good. And <laughs> the, yeah. the, the controversial uh, and maybe the most controversial thing I can say so far is that saturated fat isn't bad for you. The steak part, answer to your problem is it's entirely a cooking thing. Fat is flavor and the marbling tastes good. It is sort of, we like to think that it helps 
the fat melts into all the little teeny microscopic pores of the muscle protein. I don't think that that's true. I think the advantage is that as you're cutting the steak, you get a piece of uh, a bite that has steak and fat and steak. As you're chewing it, it feels more tender and it has it's juicier and it tastes better and it has a better mouthfeel. If your beef is lean, if you have control over it, cut it thinner as opposed to thicker so that it's gonna cook more quickly. Don't go past medium because a lean piece of beef is gonna start to taste gamey. It's gonna have a, well, it's gonna have kind of a livery taste. It's not gonna be pleasing. It's not gonna be, well, most people, it won't be palatable and you say, oh, I ruined my cow. Well, cook it right. High heat, good sear, medium rare to medium, and then you're done. Okay. That's very practical. We've And we've gotten around this problem by just using a, a savite and that's sort of been the way of, of preparing these steaks and it makes things that were dry a little bit less so and they're a little more tender. You had an interesting episode where you talked about aquaculture and that's something that I had not really ever thought about. I, I mean, outside of recognizing the the escape of the Asian carp you know, into, the, into the Mississippi and, and I know that was part of aquaculture, which surprised me that actually people would raise Asian carp uh, for food. I don't know to make fish sticks out of them or something like that. But why don't you just give us a brief primer into aquaculture? Because I was really surprised at how prevalent it is and um, and how pretty much everything you get that seafood can be grown commercially in in a closed space. Right. I mean, I did not know that shrimp, for instance, were part of aquaculture, and then how you can maybe determine where your your, your seafood is being sourced from and if it matters. How you can tell in the grocery store freezer aisle, looking at the frozen, at the packets of frozen fish or anything, but we'll, for fish, it's difficult to be certain that what's printed on the package is correct. And why that statement has merit is a few years ago and maybe still currently, although People who do these things have tried to crack down on it. The U.S. government forbade fish from China. So what China did was they would catch the fish, send it to Indonesia, unpack it, repack it. Now it's it's from Indonesia. Hey, it's the same fish from a different place. No problem. We like that place. There's some hanky-panky going on with country of origin information. And how trustworthy is it? Who knows? One of the proposed solutions to fix that was bit chain technology, where you can make a record of where this particular individual fish was caught and sort of follow it through the chain of custody, which is really a pretty cool thing to do. The problem with, so yes, shrimp is, shrimp can be aquacultured. Uh, the, the list blew my mind. <laughs> oh my goodness, this, there were dozens and dozens of animals on this list. Uh, turbo was one of them. How, is it, how do you do this? So the big ones are, are salmon, uh, clams, oysters, mussels, shrimp. I don't think crabs are aquacultured, but I know that the crab farmers will catch them and cage them at molting time to catch them just in time to have sausage crabs. So I think those are wild crabs caught in time to catch for molt for them to turn into softshell crabs, which is a big deal in the south of, um, at least in Florida, maybe Alabama too. Mm. The aquaculture industry has taken a fair bit of heat because, so how would you, how would you aquaculture a salmon? Well, salmon's a 
kind of a big fish and it sort of needs, I don't know how much water it needs, but it needs a lot of space. Sure. So they, the aquaculture people make this kind of like a, think about putting a colander in the water, or your bathtub in your sink, and now you have this enclosed space. Well, kind of the same idea applies to aquaculture. You've got this gigantic, I don't even know how wide, sort of a mesh cage that's in the water and the, the aquaculture fish is in this cage and they're swimming around doing the fishy things. The problem with salmon was that there were so many in a space because they can't get out that disease was happening. There's a thing called the sea lice, which is apparently very painful for the fish and kind of ruins the fish for sale. And if it's not managed, the, the amount of fish wasted because it can't be sold, so it's killed or allowed to die or whatever happens is, right. is magnificent. And that has caught the eye of a lot of people who think this probably shouldn't be the case. In places where I think it was a lot worse than it has than it is now, but there was a period of time where aquaculture shrimp were fed or exposed to vast amounts of toxins for water retention, for color enhancement, for a variety of reasons that bolstered the sale, but all this stuff was <laughs> not at all good for human consumption. Yeah. So there were countries where we knew, no, I'm, I'm not buying shrimp from this country. I don't, you can't, I'm, you can't pay me to take this shrimp from this country. So where it comes from matters. If you're, if you're buying shrimp and if you're in the middle of Montana, it might be hard to get shrimp. My own personal opinion is a North Carolina hopper is the only shrimp you should be eating because it's freaking amazing. Uh, if you can get them, find Royal Reds. They're, they're deep water shrimp. They're as red as can be. They are the sweetest shrimp you'll ever have and you're gonna pay for it. But definitely check what should you do at your grocery store when you're walking the aisles. If your grocery store has a fish counter, chat up the person at the fish counter. Is this wild caught? I would like to think that everybody who works the fish counter knows the answer to that question. Is it wild caught or is it aquaculture? If it's aquaculture, where did it come from? And then look at it. I mean, it, you can tell by looking at the fish, if it's, if it's something you want to eat, if it doesn't look appetizing, well, guess what? It's not gonna be. So look at it. Is it shiny? Is it pretty? Does it something that you want to eat? If it's not something you want to eat, it doesn't even matter if it's wild caught. If it's not pretty, don't buy it. And, and we're talking about large numbers too that are aquaculture. I mean, it sounds like about 50% of the seafood you'll, you'll find is, is grown in farms. Is that correct? Yes. It might be slightly more, but just about 50% of the fish that you would find for sale, both in a restaurant or in the grocery store or the fishmonger, is, is aquaculture raised. Yeah, that's really remarkable. I want to just shift gears a little bit because... You know, I had sent, I had sent some questions to you ahead of time, just things I thought you might be able to, to talk about. And, and since you spent so much time in the kitchen, uh, I kind of sent a joke that, I, you know, eggplant. When I, when I was a kid, I grew eggplant and they're beautiful. I mean, eggplants are really the coolest looking vegetables and these beautiful purple things. And they are truly, I thought, hideous. I'm just trying to eat. I just, I, I, there are maybe some worse vegetables to eat, but I found eggplant is really one that is, I've, did not enjoy. And I also found that it, one eggplant plant is more than enough to feed a family because yeah. they have, they produce a ton of eggplants. They and do. I think I, when I first grew them, I had like four or five in my back. I mean, just, you know, and eggplants you can't give away because no one really wants them. And so, and then the only addition anyone knows is eggplant Parmesan. 
but I kind of sent that as a joke and you came back with, oh, the eggplant is actually a spectacular vegetable. So I want you to describe to me why eggplant so great. I mean, I, this is, this is a part of cooking that I know nothing about, but I, I'm fascinated to find out why eggplants are so, so wonderful. All right. Well, the first thing is it isn't a vegetable, but it's a berry. Okay. I would not have guessed that. <laughs> but that's that's like a tomato thing, right? That's like a tomato. As a vegetable yeah, yeah, it's actually a fruit. It's, it's cook nerd 101, but nobody really cares because they don't <laughs> like it. Knowing it's a berry doesn't make them like it anymore. So most people are familiar with that oddly shaped and bizarrely named purple eggplant, which looks nothing at all like eggs and doesn't taste like eggs. There's at least a half a dozen varieties that you could find at the store. Uh, the one that we just know is kind of like the basic Italian one that you make the Parmesan from. They all have their virtues, and there's actually one I've never seen. I'm told you can eat it raw. Now, I've never done that, and I do not recommend anybody go to the store and say, hey, let me try this eggplant raw, because that guy in the doctor show said do it. No, 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 no. <laughs> Don't do that. Just that, that big one that you buy that does make great eggplant Parmesan, by the way. The nice thing, and the thing that's the, the value to me about an eggplant is by itself, it's fairly, it's a little, it's a little bitter. It's a little, it has a little bit of an acridness to it until you cook all that out of it. But once you cook that out, now basically what you have is a flavor sponge. Now it takes anything you add to it. So that's why as an eggplant parmesan, it tastes great as long as you've got really spectacular marinara and a good cheese. It's just the vehicle to eat the sauce and the cheese. There, so put it, saute it into small dices and add it to some pasta dishes. Now, one of the things that maybe a lot of people don't really understand it makes them not like eggplant is you have to cook it completely. Slightly raw eggplant, you'll never forget it and you'll hate eggplant forever. It's got to be cooked a lot. And because it has, because it's basically a sponge, it's this plant sponge, it's going to absorb a lot of oil in the beginning. And at some points, you put oil in the pan, put the eggplant in there, and where'd the oil go? Now you see white smoke, the pan's too hot, the eggplant's starting to burn, and you're criticizing yourself because, see, I told you I can't do this. <laughs> Just need more oil in the pan. And once the oil is absorbed by the eggplant and the cell walls begin to break down, then the sponge is going to release the oil back into the pan. Then you can finish cooking it so it's all completely cooked. It, eggplant is interesting in that it won't mostly lose its shape. You cut it into a dice, it's gonna retain its dice shape even though it's gonna get really squatty because the cell walls have broken down You've concentrated the eggplant flavor, but it's also going to absorb all the garlic and the onions and the rosemary. And what else are we going to put in here? Put, oh, beef would be good, a little bit of beef and some mint. We can do like a little Thai Italian thing. Mm, sesame seeds would work. So now we have a nice dish that has lots of flavors. The eggplant is carrying all that flavor. So everybody at eggplant now is a burst of onions and garlic and mint and tomato and wow. This is amazing. I didn't know eggplant could be this good because now it disappeared. It's become just the thing transmitting flavor, not this half-cooked sponge yuck. Well, that makes sense because we would be we make like stir fry or something like that. You'll have other vegetables like a turnip or bok choy and these other vegetables that are 
that are not, I don't want to say flavorless, but they don't have a whole lot of distinct flavor to themselves, but they are sort of there for texture and just, I think just to absorb whatever it is that you put in there as far as the, the seasoning. So that's, so they, right. so that's pretty much the same as an eggplant. When you talked about oil too, I'm curious about, cause you go to the store and there are probably, I don't know, 20 different oils you can buy, canola, you know, vegetable, which whatever that is, sunflower, avocado, coconut, all this. Do you, when you're cooking, do you, are you intentional about the oils you use or do you say, oh, this is my sort of go-to oil that I use for most, most dishes? Or how do you, how do you kind of just figure out what you need for what you're making? I'm pretty deliberate about my choice. If it's, so this is (laughs) controversial statement number two. (laughs) I only, the only olive oil I use is actually virgin olive oil. And yes, I saute in it. Oh my gosh. Um, So I have good support for this. In the in the Jewish section of Rome, they make, oh my gosh, I've never been there, but I recreated it. They make a, 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 a artichoke heart fried in extra virgin olive oil, Karchofia Judea, and it is magnificent. It, my God, it's so good. So if it's good enough for the Italians to fry in extra virgin olive oil, who am I to tell them no? So I use extra virgin olive oil. I do use coconut oil. I use rendered bacon fat, rendered beef fat. I use chicken schmaltz when I get it. Uh, if my crock pot from pulled pork has lots of pork fat, I shave that off and I use that. Uh, then I'll use butter. Uh, the only seed or, or well bean, nut oil that I use is peanut oil in the deep fryer. I avoid deliberately Anything that's liquid at room temperature that came from a so-called vegetable, which isn't a vegetable at all. So no sunflower, no sunflower, no Crisco, no corn, no canola, good Lord, no canola. Anything like that, I don't touch it. So now uh, stir fries get coconut oil because it has a really high smoke point. And that coconut flavor with the caramelization of the things tastes good. Well, so if I'm making hamburgers with with sauteed onions and mushrooms. So I take the mushrooms and onions and some beef fat because beef goes with the thing, tastes good. So the, I'm looking for flavor complements as opposed to flavor contrasts when I'm doing sauteing. That's interesting. Cause you know, I, I feel like most of the time we're just using, a recipe may call for oil and you just grab just oil, right? As opposed to being intentional about, about those those things that right. it makes a lot of sense. I mean, it does make, you know, if you're having beef, you should have something that tastes that goes with that, that particular flavor. So mm-hmm. uh, what, and then what would you use avocado oil for? I wouldn't cause I don't know enough about it. I oh, think okay. that it's got, it's, it's getting some hits lately, some derogatory dings because it turns out, I haven't really looked into this. I, I think it's still in the polyunsaturated fatty acids category and and for that, I wouldn't buy it. I avoid PUFA deliberately. But also, I think avocado oil has a very short shelf life. There's a very quick rancidity factor to it. Uh, and there's, you know, there's no guarantee that the Crisco oil or the canola oil you're buying isn't already rancid. Because PUFAs go rancid at physiological temperatures. And how long has it been on the shelf? How long was it in a box on a shelf someplace else before it came to this shelf? Oh, interesting. I never, I never really thought about that before that, that, because, you know, there's certain things that you are obviously spoiled, right? You have a piece of bread and it's moldy, or you have 
yeah. milk that gets lumpy or, you know, I mean, there's there lots of foods are, are obvious when they go bad, but that's interesting that, that oil, because how do you know when oil has gone bad? Because it doesn't, it doesn't usually look much different, at least in my experience. It, no, it doesn't look different generally. And so here, this is, it's a good question and it's an interesting answer. It's entirely possible that our, our tastes have accepted that this is what canola oil tastes like. It's also entirely possible that every time you've had it, it's been rancid. I don't, <laughs> oil shouldn't, this is gonna sound strange because coconut oil plainly has a flavor of its own. Uh, right. um, olive oil has a flavor. In fact, people, people seek out particular kinds of olive oils for that specific extra flavor but a, a boring, insipid, yellow or white oil shouldn't have a flavor of its own. And so maybe we're not used to that, but I don't know how you tell. That's part of the problem. How do you tell when canola oil is going rancid? Well, I don't know the answer to that, but even if it isn't rancid, what PUFAs do in our system to our bodies is more than enough reason to avoid them entirely. Yeah. Well, and when I talked to, to Jason Fung about fasting, I mean, we certainly talked to a little bit of dietary stuff. And if you read some of his books on fasting or diabetes, he, he will talk about the fact that it's, that we don't pay nearly enough attention to what we put in our bodies. I mean, as, as we sort of talked about earlier, you just sort of eat food, you have calorie counts and things like that, but the types of calories and where they come from and the nutritional content of other stuff that's in them is important and probably there are lots of processes of the body that we just don't spend much time thinking about, I guess is probably the, the point. And that's probably very important. That's all I can think about as far as food comes. I mean, I could ask you a million questions about food because I know nothing about food, except I like eating it. You say, you kind of mentioned that you like to bake, which you which we were talking off air that you said that's actually unusual for someone who is head chef or something like that because baking sort of beneath them. I, yeah, no, it's not that baking is beneath cooks. It's that it's hotline cooking. So you go to the restaurant, the guys who, the guys, the people who made your dinner, it's a very specialized kind of work. Working on the, work is called the line, work on the line, making the dishes. Yeah. Not, not so much at like, you know, McDonald's, but say a sit down restaurant where they're actually cooking to order. There, there's a skill to doing that. And sure. the skill to doing that is antithetical to the discipline needed to bake. Now I was sort of <laughs> sort of baiting the cooks there, but there, cooking is, is a bit of alchemy because every pan, every dish, you ordered a filet, your wife ordered a filet, and the guy at the table ordered a filet, but not at the same time. So all three are at the right temperature and the veggies are sauteed to order. And maybe you've got three more pearl onions than that guy had. And that's okay. Cause there's, there's a little bit of just alchemy, a la minute, this is what's going on. When you go to the baking side, you can't just start grabbing a handful of flour and a handful <laughs> of salt. And you get, if you're imprecise on the line, it's not really that big of a deal as far as the ingredients in the pan for the plate. If you're imprecise in the bake shop, well, we've got problems because you can force with the, with like like forging the something in Mordor. I'm trying to get Lord of the Rings and I'm missing it. You know, you've got the heat and the stainless steel and you're making this vegetable, this plate, and then you go into the bake shop and no, 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 no. <laughs> baking, baking will not be forced. It will, you will succumb 
to the will of the flower and the leavener at your peril, it will succeed or not. And that's entirely up to you learning to pay attention to what does the flower want? What does the muffin want to be? What does the bagel want to be? What does the biscuit want to be? If you're trying to use brute force, you're, you're making bricks. And that's the main reason most line cooks don't like baking because they can't force it. It requires listening to the food in a way that line cooks generally don't. That's interesting because, you know, it, there's a real parallel in medicine to this. And we always talk about the art of medicine and there is a feel to sort of taking care of a patient. I would just talk about for an anesthesia standpoint, the person will always ask me, a patient will always ask me, so how much anesthesia do you use? And I always will answer enough. And it's kind of a smart alecky answer, but in many ways it's actually entirely true because I will use different amounts of anesthesia for everybody, even if they're the same age, same weight, and everything you're looking at them is about the same, yet you end up having to change it based on how they respond physiologically, you know, their heart rate and blood pressure and things like that to the anesthesia and everyone's different. And so in some ways I think of it, that's probably like cooking, right? Like you have a filet and well, one filet is four ounces more than the X, the, the previous one that you, for maybe the same people at the table. So you're not going to have exactly the same amount of ingredients and maybe things are a little bit different and it is sort of like a, as you feel sort of way. However, there are some things that are formulaic in medicine that, that it is unwise to go outside, stray outside the, um, the algorithm. ACLS is a great example, right? When you're trying to resuscitate someone, how often you're doing chest compressions and you have all these sorts of rules that we have in place because that's best practice. And we know that this, all, this works more than any other sort of method. So you certainly can stray outside of that, but it would be unwise, very similar to baking, right? Like, you know, you, I'm just not gonna add as much baking soda this time. And then you end up with, you're gonna pay for it, right? Or something like that, yes. right? I mean, and so I definitely can see how there, there are similarities and there are probably many things in life that are like this, right? Like you, it is helpful to have an algorithm, but it's helpful to also have the ability um, to be able to work without one. I mean, driving's like this, right? You want to think about what you're doing. Maybe you take a different route, but you're always going to be unthinking and sort of have the, you're going to follow the traffic laws. You're not going to stop every red light and those sorts of things because it's unwise to, to violate those, those norms or lives, I guess. But it, it, it's like... And I often, I often do say that it's, it's a lot to me like any other craft. You can be, you can follow the recipe as long as now, you can follow the recipe, but really the thing to follow is the procedure because anybody can make a list of ingredients, but if they can't tell you how to assemble the ingredients, then you're going to say, see, I told you I can't bake, but it's not your fault probably at all. It's the instructions you were given. So if you were to buy a, pocket knife and a two by four, you wanted to practice whittling. Well, you might cut yourself because you didn't know you're not supposed to push away instead of pull it. And there's there's yeah. basics to whittling, there's basics to, to working with wood or to writing or to painting. And you can become competent at the basics and say, okay, I can do this. Now, because you can paint the picture doesn't make you a painter any more than making a batch of muffins makes you a baker. But now that you have some skill under your belt and some competence in your hands, once you learn what the rules are, you might cut back on baking soda, fine. What's going to happen? Is this going to create the effect you want? And it might. You might have in mind the exact thing you produce, but only by understanding what's happening in, in the bowl, then in the pan, then in the oven, does 
the knowledge of what to do with the ingredients allow you to change those algorithms and create a product that you're happy with. That's a great way of putting it. Well, Dan, thanks so much for being on The Paradox. I appreciate it. Where's a great place for people to catch up on you or should they just visit The Culinary Libertarian? Yep, everything everything's there, culinarylibertarian.com. And that's got the, the podcast, the link for the book. Everything's there. And thanks again so much for being on the show. And I'd recommend anyone to, if you're interested in cooking and a little bit of politics too, thrown in from time to time, I think it's a great, podcast. Thanks so much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Thanks again, Dan Reed from the Culinary Libertarian Podcast. But before we end, don't forget to reach out to Medevolve. For those of us who know how hard it is to build and maintain a sustainable business, we understand that bringing the right solutions to achieve our goals is key. Go to www.drpodcastnetwork.com slash Medevolve and get on the path to transparency, automation, and accountability in your revenue cycle. Thanks for listening to The Paradox. If you like what The Doc is doing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher and share the show with your friends. Become a supporting listener to get access to special bonuses at patreon.com forward slash theparadox. Show notes can be found at theparadox.com. 